Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. This is part two of a special three-episode podcast about witch hunting in colonial Connecticut. In this episode, I recount the sobering tale of Connecticut's role in New England witch hunting from conducting the first witchcraft execution through the Hartford witch hunt of the 1660s to the case of Catherine Harrison, arguably the most important witchcraft trial to take place before Salem. Why was Connecticut early New England's fiercest prosecutor of witches? What was a witch trial like? And how did Connecticut change from being early New England's fiercest prosecutor to a colony that would end witchcraft executions permanently a full generation before Salem? It's one of the most fascinating stories from early Connecticut history, and it offers much to think about today. So settle back and lend me your ears as I share the tale of witchcraft in Connecticut. Another one of the stories we live by on Grading the Nutmeg. Well, when the Puritans came to America, they brought all of these English witch fears with them. That They brought the familiar, they brought the witch's teeth, they brought... The whole, the whole culture of magic and witchcraft sailed with them with their Bibles and their fears. In England, there were maybe a 1,000 people executed for witchcraft, uh, many of them in the 17th century, about the time the Puritans were leaving. In fact, in the years 1645 to 1647, the biggest witch hunt in the 17th century took place in England in counties from which many of the Puritan people came from. There is a wonderful new book called Before Salem, written by Richard Ross, who is a former head librarian at Trinity College. And he looks at early witch hunting in the Connecticut River. And one of the things he's found is that Many of the people who came to Connecticut and were involved in the early witch trials were in the West Country. They came from the West Country where a man named Matthew Hopkins up here who called himself England's witch finder general. He conducted a witch hunt in between 1645 and 1647 in which at least 47 people died. Ross thinks it's 200. And it was a terrible witch panic in England from the very places that these Puritans came from. Now, they're in contact with people back home. They know what's going on, and they know about these witch hunts. And those fears that are going on over there, if the devil is attacking Puritans in England, won't he do more in this world where they've come into the devil's own country? So it's not surprising, I think, that New England's first execution for witchcraft takes place right as this, kind of at the height of this witch hunting epidemic in England. Now, the interesting thing about this first witch death is that we wouldn't know about it at all except for two sentences that appeared in two different documents that were produced 100 miles away and that were found 300 years apart. John Winthrop Jr., the governor of New England, 
who kept a journal that is one of our best records of the history of early New England, wrote in his journal in 1647, one, and he left a space when he found the name he was going to write it in, one blank of Windsor, arraigned and executed at Hartford for a witch. Now for 275 years, that's all we knew. Some person who was a resident of Windsor was tried in Hartford and executed. What did she do? What was she charged with? Who was at her trial? How did she defend herself? What was the conviction like? Where was she hanged? Where was she buried? None of that. We didn't even know whether she was a she or a he. Then in the early 1900s, they're moving the state library. They build a new state library across from the Capitol. And they take the old archives of the state across the street. And along the way, they find the uh, journal of Matthew Grant, who was the secretary of Windsor. And on a page in that journal, he has written the following. May 26, 1647, Alice Young was hanged. So 300 years later, we find that the first person executed for witchcraft is named Alice Young. And that's still most of what we know about her until Richard Ross goes on a great genealogical quest, and I invite you to uh, follow his trail in his book. It's fascinating. So that's the first person executed in New England. And we know, even today, we know precious little about her and nothing about her trial. How and it's, she was hanged for witchcraft? Say again? How do we know she was hanged for witchcraft? I mean, she the, well, we actually know from internal documents later. There is a... There is a letter from Governor John Winthrop Jr. to someone else in 1663 that talks about, he's, a, he's an, an alchemical physician, and he talks about a disease that's suffered by a man named John Young, who was the husband of the woman executed for witchcraft in Windsor in 1647. So those dots get connected, but... That's, you know, it's a precious little we know about her. And it's almost because we know so little about her that when the second person was executed for witchcraft in Massachusetts in 1648, John Winthrop, the governor who had written this line, made sure that we knew everything there was to know about Margaret Jones. In his journal now, he gives us chapter and verse. If you want to know why this woman deserved to die, let me tell you. She practiced maleficia. She was found to have a malignant touch as many persons, men, women, and children, whom she stroked or touched, were taken with deafness or vomiting or other violent pains or sickness. How could she do that if she wasn't a witch? She could interfere with natural processes and with healing. She, practicing physic, that was a word for medicine, and her medicines being such things as were harmless, yet they had extraordinarily violent effects. How could a mere woman do that unless she were a witch? She could harm people and she could predict the future. 
She would tell such as would not make use of her physic that they would never be healed, and accordingly their diseases and hurts continued beyond the apprehension of all physicians and surgeons. She could divine the future. Uh, she had secret knowledge. Winthrop reported that some things which she foretold came to pass accordingly. Other things she could tell of, as secret speeches, etc., things that she wasn't present at, which she had no ordinary means to come to the knowledge of. What more do you need, my friends? This is a witch. We need to preserve the security of the community. We need to get rid of this kind of person. She had a witch's teeth. She had, upon search, an apparent teat in her secret parts, as if it had been newly sucked. And after it had been scanned during a forced search, it withered, and another began on the other side. What more evidence do you need? You want more? I'll give it to you. She had a familiar. In the prison, in the clear daylight, there was seen in her arms, she sitting on the floor and her clothes up, etc., a little child which ran from her into another room. <clears throat> and the, the officer following it, it vanished. Do you realize the danger we are in? Yes. Yes, you do, and you agree with me that Margaret Jones must die. And of course, Margaret Jones, being a compliant evil witch, even on her death, gave additional proof that she was indeed a witch. Because at the moment of her death, she invoked weather magic. The same day and hour she was executed, there was a very great tempest in Connecticut, which blew down many trees, etc., so if you have any doubts about Margaret Jones, talk to the people in Connecticut. That's how you kill a neighbor. There was something else about Margaret Jones that'll make a lot more sense to us. And Winthrop recorded that too. She was an uppity woman. Her behavior at her trial was very intemperate. Lying notoriously, like saying, I am not a witch, and railing upon the jury and witnesses, and in the like distemper, she died. Up until the point I read that sentence, I felt sorry for Margaret Jones. But when I read that sentence, she changed for me from being an unfortunate victim to being a kind of hero. Here is a woman with the entire power of the state arrayed against her, and she knows she's innocent, and she knows she's going to die, and she just yells and screams her way to the gallows. She doesn't fold as other people did. She fights the good fight to the death. That makes her a remarkable person. Well, that aggressive behavior, that that rebellious streak, that not taking orders, is one of the reasons that most witches were women, and indeed they were. Uh, women, usually over the age of 40, were singled out for prosecution. Is that me? Oh, okay. Occult influences are in this room. 
Women age 40 and above were singled out four to one. One out of every five which accused witches was a man, but often they were a man who was related to another suspected witch who was a woman, either a son or a brother or something. A lot of connections, but by far most witches were women. Now, if you want to think that this is a society that is just full of uh, male chauvinist pigs. That's fine, and there certainly is a lot of uh, uh, there's a, a lot of uh, misogyny, I think, kind of built into baked into the cake here. But again, it doesn't make sense just for misogyny to be the reason. It may be built into the culture, but not every woman was singled out, not everyone was treated this way. So why these women? One of the things you have to think about is this, this really fragile society you have out in the wilderness. Someone once characterized these Puritan societies as, as Puritan towns as little islands in a sea of danger. English people didn't know about woods. They'd had no experience in forests. Forests is where the devils and where those savage, diabolical Indians live. They, once they got outside of their little palisaded or fenced towns, they were lost. They were in no man's land, and it was a dangerous place to be. So you lived in a world, there weren't police forces, there weren't hospitals, there weren't safety nets of any kind. And one of the things you worried the most about is the security of the town. In 1637, there had been an attack on Wethersfield, blind attack in the morning. Nine people were killed, nine of about 40 in the town, and it nearly destroyed New England. Another war in 1675 nearly wiped out the English colonists. So they lived in constant fear of Indian attacks. When you don't have an army, you don't have a police force, You've got to have a great command and control uh, uh, ability in the town. So they said every family is a little commonwealth. It is like, just like a monarchy, it has a ruler and it has subordinates. The father is the ruler, just like the king is the ruler, and the mother ha and everyone in that household has to be subordinate to the man. Anyone who violates that puts the community at danger. No one violates that more than a rebellious woman, a.k.a. Anne Hutchinson, etc. So there's a context for it. It doesn't change the misogynistic nature of the practice. Rebellious women had to be controlled. A woman named Carol Carlson has written a book many years ago called The Devil in the Shape of a Woman in which she argued that women on the verge of inheriting enough property in a way that would allow them a measure of independence were disproportionately singled out for witchcraft charges that still continues to be debated. Then there's this one. I think every man in here would agree with me that when it comes to being moral and thinking higher thoughts that we men are the superior people. <laughs> we think about poetry, art, culture, literature. It's the women who are watching those shows. And, well, 
Now, that's not the way we think about it today, but it is certainly the way they thought about it in the 17th century. Men were the morally stronger forces in nature. Women were the most easily tempted. They were, they were the most lustful, the most wanton. Want proof? Look at the picture. When the serpent in the Garden of Eden went after someone who yielded to temptation, was it Adam? No, it was Eve. So, and this is a world where religion, science, and magic are all woven together. It shapes culture. So, there's that. Well, let's look at the early trials, compare them to Salem, then we'll double back and talk about what happened in Hartford kind of quickly. If you look at the history of witch hunting before Salem in New England, this is what you find. Between 1647 and 1692, a period of 45 years, 57 people were brought to trial in New England for witchcraft. Their trials produced 16 convictions, 4 confessions, 14 to 16 executions. We think all 16 were executed, but we don't have just absolute proof on two of them. If you look at Salem, you had, in two years, you have 156 people accused. They produced 30 convictions, 44 confessions, and 19 executions. So if you look at it, and you kind of do a timeline and just do the math, it looks like you have two different sorts of things going on here. If you average it out, about once every four or five years before Salem, you have a show trial, a witch is convicted, everyone sees what can happen if you act a certain way, and it serves as a cautionary tale for the society. Then you get this huge kind of witch hysteria in two years in Salem, things blow up, get completely out of control, and it goes away. It's plausible, makes really sense until... I sat down with a piece of graph paper and I mapped out the prosecutions and executions. This is what it looks like, and that was really interesting. All of the people executed for witchcraft were executed between 1647 and 1667. It's a little 20-year period. And then the next witch hunting episode happens between 1687 and 1693. In the middle, there's 28 years, a whole generation without a single witchcraft execution. Ah, I says to myself, you're a historian. What's going on here? So that took about two years of research and um, the answer is fascinating, and it has a lot to do with Connecticut. There's another thing that came out of that research, those early witch trials. Connecticut proved to be much, much tougher on witches than Massachusetts. Between 1647 and 1655, Massachusetts acquitted half of the people brought to trial on witchcraft. You were charged in Massachusetts, you had a 50-50 chance of getting off. In Connecticut, all seven of the people brought to trial were convicted and executed. To be indicted for witchcraft here in Connecticut was a death sentence in the earliest trials of all. We were a hanging state. Now, all that began to change in 1665 because of this man, John Winthrop Jr., a guy so interesting, so fascinating, so different that someone should write a book about him. 
I did. Sorry about that. Shameless plugging. He was governor of Connecticut for 19 years, from 1657 to 1676. He had to sit out one year because Connecticut had term limits. They got rid of it the year he sat out. He was a founder of three towns, Ipswich, Massachusetts, uh, Saybrook, Connecticut, and New London. He was an industrial entrepreneur who raised money in Europe to create the most advanced iron foundry in the world in New England in the 1640s. He also was New England's most sought-after physician. This was a guy whose medicines and whose healing worked so well that people wrote to him from the Caribbean and from Europe asking for medical advice. People would flock to him to uh, be healed by his care. He was the leading scientist in all of colonial North America. He was a founding member of England's Royal Society, which today is still one of the leading scientific institutions in the world. He was a charter member and the first colonial member ever. He was all of those things because John Winthrop Jr. was an alchemist. He was one of those people dedicated to finding the Philosopher's Stone, to uh, unpacking all of the secrets of alchemy, to harness these occult unseen forces to do God's work in the world. Remember, religion, science, and magic in a helix that cannot be separated. He founded New London as an alchemical colony. You know, we think of New London as a seaport town with maybe a pretty good restaurant in it or two in it, right? And some good music now and then. But in 1645 or 1650, when they first petitioned to call it New London, it was a shocking name. They went to the General Assembly and they said, we want to create, a, we want to name our town New London. And they said, well, that's pretty brash. We think it's a wonderful name, call it Fair Harbor. So they went away for a year, came back two years later, said, we're ready to name our town New London. They said, good, call it Fair Harbor. In 1657, Winthrop was elected governor. Next session of the General Assembly, they named it New London. Funny how that works. Um, what's important about that? Winthrop wanted New London to be an alchemical colony, a research center that would perfect these scientific secrets and hasten the coming of Christ. That's what, that's the vision for New England in the 1600s that uh, has gone all but unexplored. Now, as a practitioner of the occult, as an alchemist, as someone who actually studied natural magic, Winthrop was considered something of a magic expert and a safe one because he was, he was clearly a leading Puritan and his religious credentials were, for the most part, unquestioned. So when there were questions of magic and witchcraft, they brought Winthrop into the case. And his efforts, once he got involved, changed Connecticut witchcraft prosecution forever. From 1655 to 1661, no one accused of witchcraft in Connecticut was convicted because he was involved in every case and found a reason to say, essentially, there are reasons for suspicion, but they're not witches. Then in 1661, 
for reasons too long to go into here. Winthrop had to go to England quickly to get a new charter for Connecticut that would protect its existence with a new king on the throne. Puritans had executed the new king's father ten years before, and Connecticut was in jeopardy because it had no charter at all. So they sent Winthrop on a charm offensive. He went to England, and all those people he had held back from prosecuting witches felt like, wow, the, you know, the restraint is gone. So, when an eight-year-old girl named Elizabeth Kelly got sick one night in Hartford and started screaming in the middle night of the night to her father, Gutierrez torments me. She pricks me with pins. She'll kill me. Father, call the magistrates. Make her stop. The father said, you ate something that's not good for you. You'll be all right in the morning. Well, she wasn't all right in the morning, and she screamed in agony for two weeks. And when, with her last words, she said, Goody Ayers chokes me, get the magistrates, and died. Her father did get the magistrates, and all hell broke loose in Hartford. The Hartford witch hunt was Salem in miniature, but not too miniature broke out, there were eight trials in eight months. Now, if you can imagine the theater of a town that feels it's being assaulted by witches and witchcraft everywhere. In one of these eight trials, a person was subjected to the water test. Those of you who have been here saw the water test, saw people being uh, subjected to the water test in Wyndham at the exhibit. Right, Bev? Yeah. So what happens is you take the suspect, you bind them hand and feet, you may, you know, you may disrobe them, uh, and you throw them into the Connecticut River, Connecticut River, or you throw them into the pond. And if they sink to the bottom and stay there without coming up, they're innocent. If they float to the surface, they're guilty as hell. It's great, isn't it? I mean, you need some way where you can really tell what a witch is because you want to do justice right, right? So what you do is you dunk the witch and that'll tell you, right? What were they thinking? You know, this is one of those moments where I was saying earlier, if something doesn't make sense, it's probably because you can't get into the mindset of the people who did it. It made perfect sense to them. It was completely rational to use this as a test for witchcraft. Anybody have an idea why? I will tell you. Yeah? Well, possibly because if you're innocent and you sink and you die, you don't come up, well, you're going to heaven. So clearly you're innocent if you're, you know, if you're going to heaven. But ideally, especially if you're the suspect, you're innocent and you get to go home to your family before you go to heaven. Yeah, but that's only this one. That's, that's their position. Well, that, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. We, say again? Well, we, we don't know how long they left them down, but some people did die being tested for this. But I'll tell you what the logic is, because it makes absolute sense when you understand it. What these very religious people said is that when this suspected witch was baptized as a child, the waters of Christ accepted her into the family of God. 
If she has made a covenant with the devil, the same waters that took her in on her baptism will reject her now and force her to float to the surface. Religion, science, magic woven together in an inseparable helix. When you hear it that way, the logic makes sense, right? Even though to, to us it just seems totally crazy. As manuals like the Malleus Maleficarum told people, the ministers in the Hartford cases, cases were extremely aggressive. Why are they aggressive? Again, that's not an addled old poor woman sitting in that witness stand. If, the, if she is in league with the devil, you may not see him, but he's right there giving her strength, telling her how to resist you. He is so much more powerful than you, you worm of a minister, that if you're not strong, he'll take your soul too. So the ministers were fierce and furious in their interrogations. They, they uh, didn't just ask questions, they browbeat the witnesses. Now how do we know this? As I said before, we don't have transcripts of the trials, but we have fragments of testimony. And some of them are like, they, we know the, that which suspects in Connecticut were tried in Hartford. And some of these little scraps of paper are like, you're standing outside the courtroom and someone cracks open a window and you look in and you see this amazing community theater that's played out, this unbelievable drama that has everybody in the community riveted. The case of a woman named Rebecca Greensmith, a very old woman, she's interrogated by the Reverend John Whiting and he must have really really pounded her because when she finally broke down and confessed she said at first she could have torn him into pieces because she hated him so much for what he was doing then she says something that gives you this amazing window into the kind of questions that he must have asked her in front of everyone that she lived with because after she admitted she at first could have torn him into pieces, she went on to admit that, yes, the devil had had frequent use of her body with much seeming delight to her. Think of it. The questions, the courtroom, the neighbors, the shame. This is a terrible moment. Four people were hanged in Hartford in those eight trials, but that's only part of it. Five other suspects in those trials were so frightened, they fled the colony in terror in the middle of the night. And remember, they left the island into the forest, into this incredibly dangerous and frightening place because it was the safest place they could be and they got out of Dodge thinking they were going to die. In one case they left a two-year-old child behind and they certainly left everything they owned to be confiscated. When John Winthrop Jr. came back in 1663 with a Connecticut royal charter that was incredibly generous, so generous it gave Connecticut virtual independence a century, more than a century before independence, like 112 years before independence, we were an independent colony. When he came back, the hunt was 
had just exploded. One man had been narrowly acquitted, and a woman named Elizabeth Seeger had been acquitted once, but she was charged a second time. He must have gotten off the boat with this charter. He was the hero of the hour. Looked around him and said, what have you been doing? He set about immediately to kind of straighten things out. He brokered a deal when Seeger was charged again to have her acquitted of witchcraft but convicted of adultery. Now, why is that good for her? That, we don't know what the details are of this, but that was the negotiated settlement. Um, and the reason that would have helped Seeger is because, of course, she would be executed as a witch, but she would only be whipped on her bare back with a cat of nine tails for committing adultery. But she wasn't having anything of it. She said, that's a great deal of hodgepodge, and I'm not going to play. At one point, you just love Elizabeth Seeger when you get to know her. At one point, she said, she stood up in the courtroom, and she called Satan into the courtroom. And some, you know, if you can imagine someone in a Puritan courtroom saying, Satan, come here, that gets everyone's attention. And when the magistrates say, why did you ask Satan to come into this courtroom? Because Satan knows I'm not a witch and he'll tell you. She was good. 1665, she's back in court. Who's, who's surprised at that? She's convicted and sentenced to hang, and that's when Winthrop shows his true colors. He simply refuses to enforce the verdict using powers given to him written into the new 1662 charter. People think this is not good. New England's best-known magic practitioner continues to be overly soft on witchcraft, and he just let someone we all agreed was a witch go. So maybe we need to keep our eyes on him. Now, he's also the hero of the hour, and things go fine until you get to the case of Catherine Harrison of Wethersfield. This case nearly undid Winthrop as well as Harrison. Harrison's case is interesting because she was accused of fortune practicing fortune-telling and judicial astrology, a very kind of elite intellectual magic, the sort of stuff that Winthrop and his buddies did uh, in the safety of their Puritan <coughs> confines. She told people that she was a student of William Lilly, a famous astrologer to the Queen of England. Uh, her practice is verged on the same kind of magic Winthrop was known to practice, and it put an element in this case that had people really interested in the outcome. She was indicted and sent to jail for trial. Winthrop made a mistake in her case in 1669. He said, Catherine, your trial's not going to be for six months, and jails are a terrible place to be. You go home and be under house arrest and you can come to your trial when the, uh, when the trial date is set. <coughs> Winthrop was fine with that. The people of Wethersfield went crazy. It was like letting a known bomber, a known, a proven terrorist, in your midst, loose into the community. They did something that is virtually, it's an extreme rarity in colonial New England where people respected their betters and governors were very powerful people. 37 Wethersfield residents got together and signed a petition. 
They didn't call out Winthrop by name, but they made clear what they thought. They said, we don't know who released Catherine Harrison, but that was against the law. She was indicted. We demand that she go back to jail. We also demand that there be an independent prosecutor in this case, because we don't think the prosecutor who's there will do the trial justice. The prosecutor, as it was in Connecticut law at that time, in a capital case, one you could die for, was the governor. So what they're saying is, we want an independent prosecutor, not this John Winthrop Jr. Now you've got this really fascinating situation in Connecticut in 1669. You've got a citizenry that is desperately afraid of a suspected witch, and they think the governor is maybe really questionable too. It's a shimmering moment in Connecticut history. And Winthrop is a savvy person. He understands it. He's got one outlet. It's the same outlet that's used by colonial governors in two or three situations that have similar potency to them in the 1600s. He turns the decision of Catherine Harrison's guilt over to a group of ministers. He, uh, his, the, the judges write out a group of four questions and they turn them over to the ministers and they say, we want you to answer these questions. They will determine whether Harrison is guilty or not. But here's what's interesting about that synod of ministers. It was led by Gershom Bulkley. Gershom Bulkley got his first job from Winthrop in New London. In 1659, he moved to Hartford and began to study alchemical medicine with Winthrop a few years later. He was a rising young star among ministers, and he was certainly someone who, who saw eye to eye with Winthrop and his beliefs about witchcraft and his beliefs about magic. So, when Bulkley answered these questions about uh, witchcraft, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into all of them, but I am going to say that there was one, one uh, piece of evidence. They changed the definition of witchcraft in a way that made it impossible ever to execute a witch in Connecticut again. And here's what they said. They said, of course there's witchcraft. It's terrible, and any witch should be killed. But the rules in a witchcraft case can't be any different than they are in any other case for which someone can be put to death. So you have to have two witnesses to the act. Now, in witchcraft trials before, the two-witness rule was interpreted loosely because we're talking about magical practice. So if you were out there and Catherine Harrison came and mumbled something uh, in front of your cow and the next day your cow died and you reported it, that would be one evidence of her magic. Whereas if you in the back had, been, uh, had said something nasty to Catherine Harrison and she said, you'll never, you'll never walk away from saying that without punishment and the next day you were limp and couldn't walk for a month, that would be the second evidence and she would be convicted. So there's your two-witness rule enforced the old way. What Gershon Bulkley and the minister said, we're going to do it just like we do in every other trial. It has to be two witnesses to the same act at the same time. And if you get that, kill the witch, because they deserve it. But that made it impossible to convict, because witchcraft happened in people's heads all alone, and it spread when they told stories to their neighbors. So the story spread and the rumors spread, but it was a... The encounter with witchcraft was always 
a singular affair. So what happened? Harrison was freed, she agreed to move out of town. No one was ever executed in Connecticut again. But move forward to 1692 Salem. We don't have another execution in New England for 28 years. There's this new law that makes it really impossible to convict unless a witch confesses. Well, one does confess in 1688 and she's executed. Then in 1692 in Salem, I think it's seven girls, young girls, all are obsessed, are, are affected by witches at the same time. They aren't just witnesses to it. They demonstrated in the courtroom. There's Rebecca Nurse on the stand, and suddenly one of the girls falls down, then another, and says, there's Rebecca Nurse, she's a canary on the post, and she's pricking me with pens. Make her stop! It's the theater of evidence. And people bought it, they believed it, it was acted out right before their eyes, and the Salem hysteria They had the two witnesses. They had seven witnesses. And over and over and over again, it kept going. Well, so there it is. In Connecticut, one man believed enough that something was going wrong, and he had the power to stop it, and he interceded to to make a terrible wrong end. We live in a time with terrible wrongs too. And, you know, I, I, I hope for myself and I hope for you that if the moment comes and the time comes and the day comes when you're in that position, when you've got the power and the intelligence to stand up, to stop a wrong, you do it the way he did it. And that's the lesson from 1669. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Bev York and the Mill Museum in Willimantic. In part three, you'll hear an extended interview Brenda Miller of Hartford History Center and I conducted with historian Richard Ross about his new book, Before Salem, Witch Hunting in the Connecticut River Valley. Ross, former head of the Trinity College Library, has done amazing historical spade work that gives important new insights about Connecticut witch hunting. It's a fascinating discussion about what fear can do to a community and what a community in fear can do to its own on creating the nutmeg.